All right, open your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter, I'm sorry, yeah, Proverbs chapter 12. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 12, and I believe you have a handout, and if the Lord allows, this will be our final installment on our series, Two Kingdoms and One House. Of course, we could continue to go on and on in this, but I wanted to take these five or six messages and have them available to you on the website so that, as I'm already hearing is happening, you can refer them to friends. You can go up there as, and, uh, and, and encourage others to listen that you're trying to be an encouragement to who are in this situation we've been talking about. But I have one more thing I wanted to say tonight, and this is, uh, this is material I like to go over with people in private a lot as well in counseling situations, but we're going to turn it into a sermon uh, tonight. This is straight out of our premarital counseling material. Some of you have been through that with me. But I thought it was an appropriate conclusion to this series. Two kingdoms in one house, living with a disobedient or unsaved spouse. So, um, I, I, I'll never forget, my mom made me take piano lessons. And I started when I was like seven years old. I had a real sweet piano teacher. She was a pastor's wife here in southeast Michigan. S very sweet, which is why it alarmed me that that I actually was capable of upsetting her because <laughs> she never got upset at anyone. And my upsetting her was, um, was wrong. It was wrong. I was a little kid, and I didn't want to play piano. I didn't like piano. I, didn't, I knew the March of the We Folk. That's it. And so I didn't work real hard. I didn't have high ambitions. I was just doing it because I had to, and, and I was a frustration to her. But then we moved. We moved from Warren, Michigan to Clarkston, Michigan. And of course, I can't keep taking piano because that's too long of a commute to Roseville at that point. And so that was my out. And I played my card on it, and I won. I didn't have to take piano anymore. I was now 10 years old. And I'm like, well, hey, Mom and Dad, you know, I still should probably take some lessons of some sort, you know, just to remain a, to develop into a Renaissance man and just to, you know, have a lot of skills and all that. And I was trying to work this angle because I had seen, remember the old TV guides we used to get? I had seen in a TV guide an advertisement for karate lessons. And so I did my best to put the charm on as much as a 10-year-old can to say, please, pretty, please, mom and dad, can I take karate lessons? And for some reason, they said yes. So I went from piano to karate. I went from poking on keys to, to punching through boards, right? And, and I loved it. It was just something that I connected with as, as a kid and, and, and lo and behold was okay at it for a kid and, and it's something that at 10 years old I jumped into wholeheartedly, started competing when I was 12 years old and 13, really got into that, went to a different style and got a couple of belts and, and started going to tournaments and it was just fun, it was my thing. I played soccer too for school but karate was my thing and... Uh, yeah, and it's something that I got into later in life as well when I was in Virginia Beach with my son when he wanted to do it. But at 10 years old, I'll never forget, it was the first night where um, it was in Waterford, Michigan was where this dojo was. And, and the, the way you started into this particular karate school is you had to sit there, if you were my age, a minor, with your parent, at least one parent. And you had to watch a class. And after you watched the class, I mean, you see a lot. You see a difficult workout, even for children. It was a real traditional dojo, and uh, using an upstairs community center room. And uh, 
Um, it was a pretty intense. It was more than I thought it was going to be, and, and it was going to demand a lot more than I anticipated from a TV guide advertisement. And then, of course, they did self-defense moves. That was cool. But then they did some sparring, some fighting with pads on, and I was like, ooh, that, okay, this is going to be fun, I think. You got to the end of the class, and then you have your interview with the black belt, the main sensei, and, and, and he has to meet not just with me, but with my parent. And so I'm super nervous. I just watched this guy run a class, and now I have my own audience with him, and he's asking me questions. Are you going to be serious about this? Do you know how to stand in a straight line? Can you do push-ups? And I'm like, yes, sir. You know, I don't know what to do, but I'm like, okay. And then he turned to my mom, and he made a statement, made a lot of statements, but I'll never forget this one statement. He said, we would love to have Jim as part of our dojo, but you have to understand, and he needs to understand and so you help him understand that he's going to get a certain amount of bumps and bruises. You just need to know that at the, at the outset. And so we're not going to get in trouble because we didn't tell you. He's going, to, he's going to have bruises sometimes. He's going to injure himself. He might be injured by others sometime. And uh, we'll, we're going to take all the precautions we can. We'll have some equipment. But it just happens. You, you become part of this dojo, you're going to get hit. It's going to happen. And are you okay with that? Well, we were both okay with that and, and uh, had a great time doing it for several years. So, I love that. Um, before you can be part of this dojo, you have to understand that there's going to be bumps and bruises along the way. There's going to be difficult times and seasons. There's going to be a little pain. And, uh, and, and, I can't, and, and, and you say, okay, I accept that. A lot of times, when people get ready to enter into a marriage... Sometimes the, the impression they have, at the very least, or the counsel they might receive, in some cases, is, sure, jump into the marriage pool. It's going to be great, and it will always be rosy, and with no problems, and you'll always get along. Right? Yeah, and, and after that six-month mark, we know better, Right? I, uh, now, I, don't, I hear other marriages like that. My wife and I, it's still rosy, and it's a sunrise every morning, and we've never had any problems. So I have to say that. She's here, right? But, uh, but the truth is what? The truth is what I tell couples before they get married, and that is jump into a marriage pool. God invented it. It's wonderful. But if you're going to come into this dojo, you have to understand. You're going to get a certain amount of problems. There's going to be some pain. There's going to be some discouragement. Jump on in. The water's great. You understand when someone says, I do, I do, I will, let's go, at the altar, at the wedding, they are entering into an, a relationship, a one-flesh relationship, where if it's true in general that life has problems, when you're in that marriage, you have just married the person that will know you the deepest and can hurt you the hardest. Uh, some of the greatest pain potential is from your spouse because it's the one who knows you the most. They're the ones that can exploit you and hurt. They know how to say something that will go with you your next day into your responsibilities and hang heavy on your heart. But you're having full disclosure here when it comes to marriage. This is going to happen. And nobody naturally likes to feel wrong. We don't like to feel wronged in investment advice we get. We don't like to be wronged in sports with our sports team. 
uh, has a call go against them. We don't like to be wronged in our education. We don't like to be wronged in our purchases. But especially, especially marriage, it's, that, it's those wrongs that can go so deep. And so what I wanted to do for the last installment of our series here is I want to talk to you about the rights. You say, what do you mean the rights? Well, you're going to be wronged in marriage. You're going to be wronged. And I want to know, and I want you to know, what are your rights in your marriage when you're wronged by your spouse? You do have rights. And to be honest with you, pastorally, and even as a disciple of Jesus myself that's trying to uh, make my way through life just like you are, growing in Christ-likeness, moving through difficult times. When I see, just in one passage I want to show you tonight, what my rights are when I'm wronged in marriage, what Lori's rights are when I wrong her in marriage, I kind of find relief and joy. This is a perfect plan we're going to see in Romans chapter 12. You say, well, let's, you said we have to look at Proverbs chapter 12 tonight, not Romans 12. We're going to get to Romans 12. But I want you to want to go to Romans 12 first. So I need to lower some difficult stuff on your shoulders. As a pastor, as someone that cares for you, I want you to see two things tonight. You're going to see it, our second point, your rights when you're wronged. You're going to see that. But before you see that, I want you to see Roman numeral one, the faces of marital wrongs. It's one thing for me to say in a general sense, as I did in my introduction just now, that marriage is going to be difficult at times, but I, I want to go ahead and just call it out. What are the major difficulties every marriage has to face on a regular basis? Because it's the marriage of two sinners. I want to give you these faces of marital wrongs. Number one, because they are the most common that I see in my own heart. They're the most common that I see in the counseling room. Right here, these five. But I also want you to look at this list as it unfolds in Roman numeral one. I want you to look at this list and notice that there's, it's building towards something big. If we start kind of dark, we end at the lowest point in this list of five. And I want you to see this unfold. Here's my promise to you. By the time we feel that lower on our shoulders tonight, we're going to want some help. We're going to want some hope. And at that point, I believe we're all going to want to see Romans 12. What are our rights when we're wronged like this in our marriages? So what are the faces of marital wrongs? First of all, let's get right after it. First of all, there's what we'll call absent communication. Absent communication. I can already see this is going to line up and get into that picture, so I'm sorry for what happened to my slide. Uh, that's on my, my laptop, uh, so I apologize. Absent communication. This is something that um, we, we expect needs to be strong in every marriage. So we would expect that one of the major faces of marital wrongs is when there isn't biblical communication going on. And it's not that we just bump into each other every once in a while. I mean, these are seasons where things really go bad. You say, what do you mean by absent communication? Well, two things. Sometimes there's shouting. It's just kind of animated and loud and... And Proverbs will even talk about dripping ceilings. It'll talk about shouts. It'll talk about um, uh, speaking loudly and boisterously. 
That's loud communication. It's intimidating communication. And I will add, whether it's coming from the husband or the wife, it's an effort at bullying within that marriage. It focuses on fear of man, currency, as I mentioned this morning. Your Bible is open to Proverbs 12. Look at this language. Proverbs 12, verse 18. Do you see it? It says this. There is the type of person, there is one who speaks rashly. What does that mean? I mean, words are flying everywhere. They speak rashly. How do those words land? It says, like the thrusts of a sword. There is the type of person, we could say this in our context for this series, there is the spouse, there is that spouse who speaks in all directions If it's in their mind, it comes out their mouth, and it lands like the thrust of a sword. Listen, if you have a sword, um, it's a samurai sword, uh, the intent of the samurai sword is not to merely open Amazon boxes. The intent of the samurai sword, the katana, the tanto blade on it, is to not just slice parts of your body off in a war, but it, that tanto blade is made specifically for piercing even through armor. It's one of the strongest constructions of steel. If you have a tanto blade, it keeps it thick all the way to the tip. And it's for piercing. And I can't help but think of a katana, a tanto sword like a samurai would have when I read this verse. There are spouses who speak all the time and it's violent. And it goes not for the wound, it goes for the win. And in war, the win is death. There's shouting. As a matter of fact, David, King David, wrote Psalm 57 when he was hiding in a cave from Saul. And he was reflecting not just on Saul's nouns and verbs, but as you read through the Old Testament narratives and and Samuel's um, records, you see that it was Saul's advisors who were also contributing on many occasions to Saul's hatred of David. And and it's David hiding in a cave, reflecting on how those people talk to him or about him, and he pens these words. These are Psalm 57, 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. This is David hiding in a a cave. He's safe in that moment. But even in the safety of that moment and the solitude of that cave, he still shakes to think of how someone, and in this case, his authority, speaks of him so violently. When there's absent communication, it means sometimes there's shouting, but sometimes it's the other end of the extreme, and it's sometimes there's silence. You're looking at Proverbs chapter 12. Look at verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. And some spouses read that verse and they just dream, man, that would be awesome to have in this marriage if my wife would talk to me that way or if my husband would be around to talk to me that way. The problem is they're not around talking like this to me to give grace to me. Or even more so, they are around, but they're still silent to me. They won't engage me with anything meaningful or deep. You see, when we're talking about absent communication, sometimes you're shouting, 
but sometimes there's silence. Proverbs 20, 12, 25, as you read it there, it said a good word makes the heart glad, but the problem is there's no word. And all along, whether it's shouting or silence, there's the awareness with the spouse of what is absent. What could be in this marriage? What should be in this marriage? And it's gone. I mean, the marriage in the tongue is supposed to be a, what Proverbs 15, 4 says, a wholesome tongue is a is a tree of life. When you see that phrase, tree of life, that means this. What we're talking about here is your mouth is to be a source of nourishment and refreshment. But in some marriages, that's absent. That's a wrong. Would we all agree that that's a wrong in marriage? Well, let's get a little darker as we go down past that. Another face of marital wrongs is what I'll call broken promises. Broken promises. See, what do you mean broken promises? This one's real simple. This is the one where you've shared your dreams together. Remember when you were dating all those decades ago or months ago? And you were sharing your dreams of what you wanted to be as a spouse, as a husband, or as a wife, and what you dreamed they would be as a spouse to you. You made plans about what you would do with your finances. You prayed through, if the Lord will, what would happen if the Lord blessed with children. You made promises about everything from health to home. And it's good, you're sharing your dreams, but sometimes, in some cases, the time slips away quickly and, and the months turn into years, into years to decades, and all those promises that were made never materialize. You may have set goals together, short-term or long-term, but the pattern is, why set them? We don't pursue them. You might even make decisions with regarding to parenting or finances or, or a move, only to see that, once again, the decisions never came through. As a matter of fact, you know that this wrong is showing up in a marriage when one spouse doesn't even... Um, anticipate that a promise for lunch on Thursday will even materialize. We're still back on Monday. Let's wait and see if that happens or if that kind of promise goes the way of the wind as well. This is where there's a break in trust when a promise is made. It's like, without saying it out loud, we're like, yeah, let's wait and see if you really will keep up what you just promised when the time comes. And there's a culture of mistrust in each other's words. I mean, this isn't, every once in a while we have to change plans. We're not talking about that. And there might be even seasons that we lose our traction and we need to figure it out. But this becomes something that's defining in the marriage. Promises are made and promises are broken. It's not just, it's not just a one problem, it's a long-term pattern. And I think of Proverbs 25, 19 for this one. Proverbs 25, 19 says this. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Wow. So um, I, had a, I got a new tooth last week. I had a... When I was a youth pastor 
my last tooth on the bottom down here decided to like just kind of break. I remember this is back in the 90s. And I went to the dentist and he says, yeah, that's pretty deep break. It goes right down to the gum line, but I can, cre- I can craft something unique for you. I don't know how long it will last. It might last a couple years. It might last 10 years. It broke this spring, <laughs> this past spring while I was away speaking. It broke on a donut of all things. And I'm like, oh, man, I got to go get that taken care of. So I went in and finally had it repaired last week. And I, but I'll tell you, as long as I went since last spring with the sharp edges and all that, I was constantly biting my tongue or my cheek, and it was painful. I thought more about that tooth than any other tooth. And I think of this proverb we just read, that if there's a spouse who doesn't keep their promises to the one they're married to, especially, um, I promise you that they are always on the mind of their spouse, but it's not in a positive light. There's a lack of trust in that culture. So I think you'd agree with me that absent communication is a face, a common face of marital wrongs, and so are broken promises. But we've got to get a little, a little darker here. I'm going to call this one missing roles. I'm not talking about the dinner table on Sunday. That's two L's and no E. This is much worse. Missing roles. You see, we as a church family study on a regular basis in different settings. Uh, We've had series on Sunday mornings. We have um, different emphasis here and there with conferences, with the tailors when they came in, on the home and on marriage. And we talk about marital roles. And we seem to always go to Genesis 2. So I want to take you back there to Genesis 2 once again to... Day six of creation in Genesis chapter two. Genesis one is un- the, the, the creation week unfolding almost in real time, uh, it would seem. It's going by quickly. And then we get to chapter two and we get a replay of day six. And you remember this. This is the blueprint. We see in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And that NASB wording that I read there in, here in the New American Standard is a good wording for that. A helper who is suitable, who is crafted, who is a good fit. Some of your translations have a footnote that says corresponds to. So what do you mean corresponds to? My fingers right now are going to correspond to each other. Are you ready? It's not when I do this, when my fingers compete for space. Correspond means they go where the other fingers are not. That's a good fit. And God created marriage. It's his idea to bring together two image bearers of his. And they are created for each other so that they complement for each other. They're not competitors. They're completers. That's exactly what he did. But he wanted man, he wanted Adam to know that he had created this helper. And so he has him name the, the animals. You know this... this uh, seen here 19 and following and he has him do it as far as we can tell until Adam realizes there's not one of them for me there's not someone who corresponds to me that's definitely different but the difference creates a beautiful unity not just physically but every other area as well and then we know exactly what happens here because look at verse 23 when God brings what he fashioned that's 22 verse 22 the Lord God fashioned into a woman The rib which he had taken from the man, he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Even going back up to verse 20, Adam said, um, there was not found a helper corresponding to him. This is the whole theme here. So what God does is he creates a complementary relationship between husband and wife. There's going to have to be headship. That's part of his creation and his initiative. But that headship has nothing to do with the worthiness of the husband or the unworthiness of the wife. It has everything to do with the order needed for the institution of the home to survive. It has everything to do with the complement, the strengths and weaknesses complementing each other. And so if I had to summarize the husband's roles, we could go off in sermons on that, but if I could summarize the husband's role in two words, I think I can do that biblically, with these two words, the husband's role is to be the loving leader. He's to be the loving leader to his wife spiritually. He takes the initiative and leads the way. He's the loving leader physically, socially, emotionally, all the way around. That's it. And if he ever has to wonder what that looks like, he looks to the Father. He looks to Jesus. So how can we summarize the wife's role? If the husband is the loving leader, the wife, if I gave it in two-word summary, is the willing completer. The willing completer. You say, she brings all her weaknesses to the table to be joined with his strengths? Oh, no, 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 no. No, she brings her strengths to complement his weaknesses. And she takes great joy and safety under his strengths and under his assignment to be the head of the home. And she's the willing completer spiritually, physically, socially, emotionally, all the way around. Now that's a summary of what biblical roles are, big time summary. I think everyone here knew what I was going to say just now. You didn't just hear that for the first time. That's why you can be frustrated in your marriage. When you know that your wife knows what I just said, but she's not living it. Or you know your husband knows what I just said because he's read his Bible too. He's heard teaching, but he's not taking the lead. That's what I mean by missing roles. And again, everyone misses opportunities to fulfill the roles. This isn't the occasional bump. This is a new predictable pattern. The husband will not lovingly lead. The wife will not willingly complete And that makes for a huge and a darkening face of marital wrongs. We have absent communication, broken promises, missing roles. We're going to get a little darker right now. Questionable safety. This one's hard. Hear me out. You say, what do you mean by questionable safety? I think I mean this. This could be living with a husband or living with a wife who has a short fuse, and they are, in, they are a characterologically labeled angry person. Scripture would refer to them not as a good person who sometimes gets frustrated or angry. Scripture will refer to them as someone who is predictably an angry person, no matter who they're dealing with, whether it's an employer, an employee, a student, or a spouse. 
It's a short fuse which makes for short nerves in the home with the other spouse. We could be talking about that when we talk about questionable safety. Or we could be talking about a long addiction. And I'm talking here of substance abuse. When it comes into the home and the handle is lost and we are nowhere even near talking about Christian liberty. And people are getting inebriated. And when they are inebriated, they are making their house an unsafe, unpeaceful place where everyone must now be on high alert for the rest of the night. I'm talking about that. Sleep is light. Nerves are shot. Fear is constant. And you know what? I'll also take this um, to the point where I've seen it with husbands and wives actually become dangerous physically to each other. So what do we do in those situations? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We do what David did. David had a God-ordained authority in his life called the king. Saul was the Lord's anointed king. We're not big Saul fans by the end of his narrative, but we can't deny the fact that God chose him to be the first king. He's God's ordained anointed king, yet he is throwing spears at David, someone who is to submit to him. What was David's right response? To take the spear? No. Because when danger and violence comes even from a a divinely appointed authority in your life, you are still allowed to move out of the way of the spears. 1 Samuel 18, 10 through 11, it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and, and as he raged inside his house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped his presence twice. Some might even venture to count three times this could have happened with David. And we know that Saul even hurled a spear at his own son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was able to move out of the way. You are allowed to dodge spears. I'm talking to husbands. I'm talking to wives. Though most often it's the husband who brings the danger and the unsteadiness into the home. I can also tell you of counselees where the wife chased the husband around the kitchen uh, island with a knife. So it can go either way. You are allowed to get to a place of safety. And I just want to say, Scripture has given to us the gift of our government as well as the church. And let me just get real plain with, uh, with us in the room tonight and those watching and listening. And I want to talk for this point to the husbands. If you are moving beyond just being a cranky person, if you are moving beyond um, uh, just being difficult to get along with and being a grump, and you are now bringing things into the home, and you are now demonstrating in the home violence, whether that comes out as bruises or, or broken furniture and thrown coffee mugs, and, uh, and you are escalating and your spouse is in danger, here's how this is going to go down. We're going to love you this much. What we're going to do is we are going to cooperate with the authorities, make contact with them. We are going to 
provide counseling for your wife. We are going to offer counseling for you, but you still have to face, if there has been any kind of domestic abuse, you're going to have to face whatever the law brings to bear on that. As a church, we're going to provide, um, we're going to provide shelter for your wife, perhaps your children. We're going to provide counseling and scaffolding to see them safe and to see you helped. As a matter of fact, our goal will be to see you, if you're not saved, accept Christ. If you are saved, we're going to do a lot of work on you towards repentance. And we'll see what God does down the road. But understand, both the state and the church are going to come and get involved and keep you safe. Keep your spouse safe. That's what we do. I think you'd agree with me that questionable safety is a face of marital wrongs, and these are getting pretty dark, you say. There's one more, and I think we're at the bottom of the dark at this point, and you can probably guess what this one is. Shattered vows. Shattered vows. You say, what's this? This is the ultimate breach of trust in the one flesh relationship. You see, the whole thing in that concept of one flesh is there's not a third flesh coming in. See, It's supposed to be a husband and a wife, but when another party nudges into there to try to be one with one or the other, that, 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 that totally obliterates that picture of oneness between you. It obliterates the vows of exclusivity that you made at the altar. And I don't want to just talk about the ultimate breach of trust, of unfaithfulness, sexual unfaithfulness, but I'm also talking about the road leading to it, inappropriate emotional contacts and relationships with someone of the opposite, or we even have to say this anymore, the same sex. You know, Proverbs 6, verses 32 and 33 are so timeless. Listen to these words. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Heavy words. You say, well, I mean, it's a sin, and you can be forgiven of that, right? And I'm like, oh, Absolutely. And I'd like to invite you into the counseling room and, and just tell you story after story of what I got to see God do as his word came to bear on tender hearts and how many marriages have been saved and rescued where there had been immorality and unfaithfulness. It's not a mandate to end that marriage if there's repentance. You see, but what's the last word, what's that last sentence you read in Proverbs 6.33? It's this, listen to this. Wounds and disgrace they will find, and their reproach will not be blotted out. What do you, we, you mean that this can't be forgiven? It's not what it says. Think of it this way. When it comes to shattered vows in a marriage, wounds can heal, but scars remain. And those scars will become uh, an occasion for the spouse who didn't stray, for them to constantly renew their minds when, when they want to go back and relive what was done against them. It becomes a reality that they have to deal with with spiritual resources. There is a road back from this, yes, for both. But I just want you for tonight to feel the darkness of these faces of marital wrongs. Isn't this an encouraging sermon, right? Are you having fun tonight? I'm not. 
Actually, I could use a lighter sermon soon. These, all these sermons have been heavy lately. But I want you to see that there is a crescendo from bad to worse. These are the most common marital wrongs. And sometimes people see these wrongs in their marriage and, and they're real, or sometimes they think they see them and they're only perceived. And by the way, these wrongs can be committed by saved and unsaved spouses as well. I know these faces all too well, and so do you. As a matter of fact, you may be saying, oh, wow, I've actually had a, a, um, someone in premarital counseling, it was the bride-to-be after I got through this first part. I said, what do you think? And, and this is literally a quote of her response to me in front of her soon-to-be husband. One word response, yuck. I said I do to go into something where this potential of pain exists. I said, well, if you're feeling, feeling kind of crushed right now, I have some good news for you. Now, let's go to Romans 12 and see your rights and marital wrongs. Romans chapter 12. Your rights and marital wrongs. You say, well, yeah, I got my rights. You bet I have my rights. If my spouse does any of that stuff to me, I'm going to talk back. I'm going to swing back. I'm going to give back until it's all even. Or better yet, I win. I had one guy whose wife had, had, had been unfaithful for close to two years, and it came to light, and we were working with them, and, and this isn't in this ministry, and, and uh, this guy was going to work, and his unsaved friends were telling him this counsel. They were saying, she's had her fun, you go have yours now. And then on top of that, make her have to earn her keep and keep her keep. That's the kind of counsel he was getting from, un from the unsaved. But you know, that's how our world is. You wrong me, I'll give you a receipt. I have my rights, and I'm here to say tonight, and in that last ten minutes, you do have your rights. You do, when you're wrong like this in marriage. By a saved or an unsaved person, spouse. You do have rights, but it's none of those talking back, giving back, and swinging back. Paul lays out your rights right here in one paragraph to a group of believers who were wronging each other. You say, well, that's a church. Well, in some cases, if you are married to a believer, that's the church in your living room. If not, you are still part of the body of Christ with the grace of the body of Christ at work in your life even when you're separated from the church um, because you're in your living room and they're not there with you. You're still a light bearer in that living room. Now, I'm not going to do an exposition. Obviously, in the longest part of the study tonight's behind us. This is going to be quick. We're not going to go word for word, but we're going to track five themes here of what your rights are when you're wronged. First of all, when you are wronged, be quick to bless. Be quick to bless. It doesn't mean you have to affirm what has done. You don't have to say, well, you're really one of the best promise breakers I've ever met. I mean, you don't have to affirm what's wrong, but you don't have to become their enemy, is what he's saying. When Paul says be quick to bless, he's saying treat them as dear friends, even though they've wronged you. Look at verses 14 and 15 for this one. Romans 12, 14 through 15, or 14, yeah, through 15. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now again, I'm asking you to pan back and just note these broad themes. He's saying be quick to bless when you are wronged by someone. You say, what does it mean to bless? Yeah, I'll bless them. I want to bless them a good one. Not talking about that. To bless literally means to speak well of someone or well to someone. That's it. We're told to bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, Psalm 103. What does that mean? To speak well of God and speak well to God. And that's the language that Paul says that we are to take as, our, as, our, as we face those who persecute us, who wrong us. This speaks of you looking past your situation and your marriage to others who are wronged as well. You want to treat those who wrong you as dear friends. For another verse for this, you don't need to turn there, but just write it down. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 44 to 48. How are we supposed to respond to our enemies? And sometimes the enemy can be someone from your own house and your own marriage. Matthew 5, 44 to 48. I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Treat him as dear friends. Be quick to bless. That's your right when you're wrong. What's another right when you're wrong? Be aware of pride. Again, just looking at these themes. Be aware of pride. Chapter 12 of Romans, verse 16, the next verse. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty or proud in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. There are four consecutive statements there saying you've got to deal with your pride that will always show up when you're wronged, especially in your closest relationship, your marriage. Your pride will always ring the doorbell in those moments and insist on being answered. Be aware of your pride. You know why? Because our tendency, especially in our marriages, is to look down at our wronging spouse because they don't have it together like us, see. We wouldn't do that. That's pride. And Galatians 6.1 says you sure could do that. You sure could. And worse yet, sometimes because of our pride, we can stoop to this level. We can rejoice at our wrongers' suffering. And if we don't see any imminent suffering coming in because of their wronging of us, we will do the wronging. We will do the justice thing to them. We'll make them suffer. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis said that we can even be proud of our humility sometimes. And he wrote this, Pride is a telescope turned the wrong way. It magnifies self and makes the heavens small. As I said, Galatians 6.1 says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness to each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. These are your rights when you're wronged in your marriage. Be quick to bless. Speak well of them and to them. Don't get on the phone and call your your sister or your best friend and, and just, or your, your best bud and, and just talk down your spouse because of whatever they've done to you. No, you're blessing them. 
If they need attention and it's a serious risk, as I mentioned a few moments ago, that call it needs to go to, I would say, um, call the church and we're going to help you walk through that with the authorities. But anything less than that, you bless them. You got to be aware of pride. But there's a third one. Be focused on peace. These are found in verses 17 and 18 of Romans 12. I told you they're all packed right in here. Look at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Like, is there any question on the clarity of that? Don't give a receipt. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. As a matter of fact, if possible, so far as it depends on you, not your spouse, be at peace with all. What's the big theme here? Be focused on peace in those moments. Someone focused on peace asked himself or asked herself three hard questions all the time when things are tense. Number one, they ask this question. Have I swung back in this? Is this escalating because I'm helping it escalate now? That's not being focused on peace and they'll repent. Even if their spouse doesn't repent. As much as it lies with you. A second hard question they ask if they're focused on peace is, how is my example? Is my example here something that's good? I want to I I pay back. If possible, I want to be at peace with all men. I want to return good when I'm eviled. Am I, being, am I returning a receipt of something that's beautiful, or is my example, my tone, my words, and my body language Merely just making the situation worse. Have I swung back? How's my example? And a third hard question is this. Where can I be part of the solution and peace here? See, what, what would drive them to, to be focused on peace? What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Be focused on peace. Forthright when you're wrong is be confident in God. Be confident in God. This is a big one. Look at verses 19 and 20 for this one. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says who? The Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, you don't give him justice, you feed him. You don't give him a receipt, you bless him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Sounds like a good idea, whatever that means, right? But 19 and 20 is telling you this. Be confident that God's going to do the right thing when you are wronged. It says, vengeance is mine. We just had our parking lot redone this uh, fall, the end of the summer, beginning of fall. And we had to have new lines painted again. And when we put the lines back on, we had to put the handicap um, blue lines back down again. What happens? Why do we put blue handicap um, spaces out there in the parking lot and maybe even have the, uh, the wheelchair decal or emblem? Why do we do that? That's sending a message that Jim Newcomer can't pull in. He's not supposed to pull into the parking lot and park there because I don't have that same emblem on a sticker hanging from my mirror or on my license plate. That space is reserved, and not for me. 
As a matter of fact, if I park in that, technically, I think I can get ticketed. And if I'm not in the, I mean, I, I, I might even be at risk in some parking lots of being towed. I mean, nothing good happens if I park in the wrong parking spot that's reserved, definitely, just not for me. What this verse, these two verses are saying, 19 and 20, is this. Don't get into, I'm going to get mine kind of mode. Don't get into, I'm going to get even, or I'm going to pull ahead. They can't wrong me like that. This is on now. You know what you're saying? You're saying to God, God, I'm going to park in your parking spot. And it's not going to go well for you either. You're going to have to pay a heavy fee. God says, the parking spot's called vengeance. That's mine. That's not yours. I got this. You go and be a blessing to them, the people who wronged you. You bring them water. You bring them food. What does that mean? You're serving them. The posture of a servant. And in some ways, that's going to be heavier or just as heavy as revenge. It's like putting coals on a head, as the proverb says. A radio preacher one day publicly wronged Warren Wearsby, called him out on the radio, accused him of, of, uh, of just something that was not fair and not correct. And someone came to Warren Wearsby and said, are you going to say something on your show? And Warren Wearsby is like, absolutely not. And he said this, quote, if you defend yourself, then the Lord can't defend you. Leave it in his hands, end quote. Yeah, that. In essence, God says, you do your part. You love and serve as a friend. I'll do my part. Trust me. I'm the one whose Bible says in Psalm 94, 1, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. David twice could have taken Saul's life. Remember those stories? He doesn't take revenge. That's parking in God's spot. And by the way, as you read through the Bible, and I hope you read through it, you see what happens when God lets his wrath out, right? You see angels of the Lord wiping out hundreds of thousands in an army. You look ahead at Revelation and you see the judgment that's going to come on a God-rejecting world. God's wrath is serious. And as bad as our spouse may have wronged us, do we really want God's wrath to be poured out on them? I mean, I know we're upset, but think through that. I'm not taken away from the wrong. It happened, or it's happening. But God's wrath, whew, that decimates. It tempers you to think about it. There's one more right, and then we have to finish. Be victorious at last. You have a right to be victorious at last. This is verse 21. It was all in this one paragraph. Paul says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. With good. In other words, I could call it be, victor, be, be, uh, excuse me, be victorious at last, so I can keep it, in a, you can memorize these, they're kind of parallel, but we can reduce letter E to one word, win. You want to win? It's not by getting even. You win, in God's opinion, when you good the evil. Change it to a verb. Jay Adams has written a book on this little booklet. I give it away at 4D Men on a regular basis. It's called How to Overcome Evil. 
little booklet on this paragraph. And he writes in that, in that book on that word overcome in verse 21. J. Adams says, the word is a war word. It's a, it's a military word. It comes right off the battlefield with the smell of smoke and sweat still clinging to it. The term is used to describe a defeat. To be overcome is to be defeated absolutely. To overcome, on the other hand, is to defeat the enemy. It's a strong word. And if you exercise these rights, even, listen, within your marriage, you win. You win. You see, when it comes to your rights in marriage, when you're wrong, victory is not getting in the last word. Victory is not getting in the, the proverbial hardest hit. I'm not talking physically there. I'm talking nouns and verbs. Getting, or actually, when it comes to your right, victory is not protecting your reputation. Victory is not getting your way. Victory is not about your felt needs. Victory is one word according to this verse, and that one word is obedience. And Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, the classic, writes these words. God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Vic obedience is oriented towards God. Victory is oriented towards self. There's this is not to say God doesn't want us to experience victory, but rather to emphasize that victory is a byproduct of obedience. Yeah, that's it. You say, well, can you be victorious even if your spouse continues to wrong you? And the answer is yes. It's required of stewards, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.2, that one be found faithful. Those are your rights when you're wronged in your marriage. I'm a saved, a professing, believing, a professing spouse who professes faith in Christ, or one who doesn't. I don't want you to forget this. This has been with us this whole, this whole series as well. We enter our situation by going through renew. We open our Bibles. We look to the left. Is there anything we need to repent of? And this is where you say, have I been slow to bless? Have I been defensive of my pride? Have I been focused on further conflict? Have I been parking in God's spot of revenge? And have I, have I been disobeying? Then what scripture teaches you to do in Romans 12 tonight is to repent to that. And already, what to do to replace it. Be quick to bless. Be aware of pride. Be focused on peace. Be confident in God and be victorious at last. My goodness, are you ever outfitted for your marriage? Those of you who are married, you are outfitted completely for your marriage, even with its challenges. What a God. What a father we have. What a shepherd we have. What a king we have. And by the way, as you think through being quick to bless, being aware of pride, focused on peace, confident in God, and being victorious at last, someone, you say, I can't do that in my marriage. I'm just telling you I can't. Well, the good news is someone's already done that perfectly, Jesus, towards his enemies. And you can have credit for it if you're his child. You get his righteousness imputed to you. And not only that, he now gives you grace to live these out 
to look like him in your marriage. We can all tell stories of difficult marriages, and your story might be your own, but we can also tell stories of Christians that stood strong in grace, in in, in in hard marriages, and they won. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word again. Thank you for as hard and heavy as these faces of marital wrongs can be as they escalate, we are just filled with joy to see that they are equaled and even overcome by our rights when we're wronged as Christian. These truths from Romans 12 that are indeed liberating and victorious. I pray, Lord, that they will go with us into our week and into this decade, not just in our marriage relationships. Obviously, the implications here for any setting, even a church family setting, we have our rights when we're wronged. May we put your grace on display. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.